Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Seckham speaks to Karen Morn about the future of investigative journalism. Hello and welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. The series is a collection of dialogues with leading speakers and it aims to bring its audiences independent insights that help them in turn formulate their own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. Just a reminder, the social media campaign is hashtag ThinkBigPSG and the series is free, it's shareable, it's open to anyone interested whether you're a PSG client or not. Right, so in the spotlight today is the future of investigative journalism. Journalism is a tough profession by anyone's standards and is facing multiple challenges in our digital and connected world. Amongst the lot, fake news and narrative manipulation. Back senior award-winning legal journalist, documentary producer, and best-selling author Karen Morn's not in the business of leaving things unchecked or standing down for that matter, and is a strong advocate for the role responsible, accurate reporting has to play in society and especially in a democracy like ours. She offers her regular analysis on some of South Africa's most high-profile legal stories across the media spectrum from print to broadcast, but is most passionate about reporting on social justice issues. She's been named one of South Africa's most influential journalists and has recently published a book on the aborted Russia-South Africa nuclear deal called Nuclear. And before all of this, Karen Morn, I'm not sure you'll remember, but you were once upon a time one of my journ tutors at Varsity as well. So what a path it's been since then, and what a time to be a political, a legal journalist in South Africa. Or is it more a case of, has it really ever not been? I think the environment that we're in is very different because we have a social media interrogation of our actions and our reporting going on in real time all the time. And there's a constant barrage of criticism that wasn't necessarily there when I started in journalism. And, you know, of course I remember you as <laughs> being your tutor. And you were brilliant then and you're brilliant now. But I think the, you know, the, the, it's become a very shoot the messenger environment globally. We've seen the kind of attacks that journalists face around the world, some to the degree of actually being killed. Um, you know, the kind of constant level of threat that is against journalists. And unfortunately, environments where law enforcement fails, oftentimes it's the reporters that are exposing the really seedy details um, of corruption and nefarious activities that people need to be aware of. And they then become they therefore then become the targets of some truly like threatening vitriolic behavior. Yet you've taken, if we can call it, uh, a spitfire approach to it. So much so that you walk a Twitter minefield daily. More seriously, you've received legal threats from uh, former President Jacob Zuma. In fact, you're currently uh, facing criminal prosecution from the Zuma family for reporting on his court cases. To what extent do instances like these rattle or deter you? I think the thing is that for me, my faith is pivotal to what I do. I fundamentally believe that I'm here for a reason and I conduct myself in a way that is ethical, that I can justify morally. And I think that the thing that we need to remember is that history, you know, when you 
we need to keep a record of what is happening. And that's what I believe my job is. I need to say what is happening. I need to navigate through a lot of the dishonesty and inaccuracy. And I need to correctly and accurately reflect so people can understand what is occurring in a particular case and make their own minds up. People are intelligent, they understand what's happening. And in the end of the day, you know, I will be judged by my work. I will be judged by what I've said, and I can live with that. People who come from shadowy places and threaten me, threaten, um, you know, make, make you know, statements against my family, et cetera, they must live with what they've choose, chosen to do, but I'll stand in the light and they will remain in the shadows. And, and that's just what I, I know to be true. And I can justify what I've done. Karen, it's got to be tough, though, you know, in a digital world that's becoming increasingly connected, you know, uh, where you've got hurdles like fake news and narrative manipulation coming into play. What kind of hurdles does that uh, do those prop up for you for investigative journalism? And how do you clear them? I think the important thing is, is that, you know, oftentimes when we, for instance, at News24 are doing live updates, for instance, in the Zuma case, Certain like averments and arguments will be made by his team in Advocate and Kobani's case, um, by her lawyers that are not necessarily, you know, reflective of whatever and what has actually happened. So I think fact checking is becoming more and more important because these kind of um, narratives emerge in the social media space and people are like, you know, horrified. Is this true? Can this be true? And while we cannot be held hostage by fake news, we also need to be correctly reflecting what is happening so people are able to make decisions based on accurate facts. That is very, very important. So my thing is, is we're in a war for truth at the moment, and we need to be constantly on the front line saying this is in fact what happened. We need to make information available to people. We need to make it as clear and coherent as possible, and we need to trust the good, you know, people of this country, of which are the vast majority of our citizens, to understand and accept and recognize the truth for what it is. Well, you've reiterated time and time again that you use court-approved documents to craft your stories, so your stories are based on legal realities. Having said that, Karen, to what extent, you know, do biases, known or unknown, come into play? I think the thing is, is that I've always said there's no such thing as objectivity, like because I am coming as a middle class white woman who has a particular set of circumstances that I've come from, um, you know, innate or, or overt um, biases that I have to deal with, that what you strive for is balance. So in a court process, they are, it's, it's a very clear, it's a very clear line to walk because one person is making one argument and another person is making another. I think that the thing is, is that when those arguments are not necessarily adherent to the facts, you need to have that a situated knowledge to be able to say, this is in fact what occurred. Let's reflect on the judgment that this person is, is, is actually referring to. Obviously, in terms of me facing prosecution at the moment, that is very much as a consequence of me writing from court documents, writing um, you know, about a medical letter that Jacob Zuma's letter, uh, lawyers included in his court papers, and the, the potential prosecution, should it happen, will have very big implications for, for journalists and for media freedom. And that's why um, I'm very grateful that News24 has taken the stance that it has to say, when and if this in fact happens, we want to know what the charges are, we will fight it, we will take the cause for, for journalists.
But I personally feel that, you know, while you can acknowledge your biases, you have to, that it is possible to give a balanced perspective on what is happening. And it's infinitely important to include context, to include the implications, and to not believe that your audience is stupid, because they are. They will be able to navigate through the information that you provide to them and reach their own opinion. Okay, so on that topic then of full context, right, you use your resources that you've got access to the best you can, and legal documents aside, uh, you know, you do on-the-ground deep dives as well. They matter. You were recently in Dubai tracking down uh, some of the latest information on Atul and Rajesh Gupta. They've, of course, been arrested in the UAE, but there's still a great deal of speculation on whether they'll ever be extradited to South Africa to face charges of money laundering and other uh, financial crimes. What's your take on on that? Do they answer to criminal charges here? I think the thing that assists the NPA in the extradition is that the UAE, because it's been put on a grey list um, as a potential sort of conduit for money laundering, is very intent on cleaning up its international reputation. So there's already been an extradition granted um, of a particular citizen who was implicated in money laundering from another country. And when I was there, the messaging that was coming from the UAE authorities, the justice minister, the police, even confirming the arrest in that particular legal context is a big deal. The justice minister, the police coming out and saying they were South Africa's most wanted um, suspects, amongst the most wanted suspects, the justice minister making it very clear that this was a sign of how the UAE is with dealing with these allegations of money laundering. So there is political will there. And I think that bar you know, serious missteps from the NPA in terms of this process, the extradition will be granted. My issue really is what they will face prosecution for. The NPA has said New Lane, the uh, 24 million rand uh, fraud case um, that is linked to the Estina Dairy Project and then the Estina Dairy Project. Um, but we have yet to sort of see the papers that the NPA are presenting. Um, I don't think the issue is really going to be about getting them here to face trial. I think the issue is really going to be about whether the NPA produces enough of a strong case to actually get them behind bars. Because I think that's the frustration of the South African people. We have gone through so much as a country, we've experienced so much, we want to see now people facing those consequences in real, real ways. And Karen, having experienced what you have, and after having, of course, really interrogated the um, inner political machinations here, as you continue to follow Jacob Zuma's corruption trial, delay after delay, how are you feeling about where things stand as far as the former president is concerned and the fact that he hasn't yet fully been held to account? I think, you know, at this point in South Africa's history, we are trying to catch up to a whole lot of things that should have happened many years ago. Jacob Zuma should, been a, should have been put on trial with Shabir Sheikh in 2003. Um, our entire history would be different if it had, that had occurred. Um, unfortunately, it did not. And we now sit in a situation where at the age of 80, he's facing you know, a potential 25 years in, in jail. But you know, I think what I take from that is that the fact that after all those legal machinations, after the NPA withdrawing the charges, after the DA going to court fighting this fight here, we are now at a point where he has actually pleaded not guilty, he is on trial, though he is embarking on a lot of different strategies to challenge his prosecution. I think that's something that we, we can be proud of as a country. 
We also have the judge president, John Clope, around about the same time, 2008, um, facing allegations that he had tried to sway two constitutional court judges to rule in favor of Zuma. Now, after a protracted and very litigious process, facing possible impeachment. We also have a public protector who is going through a parliamentary process. I mean, a lot of us would have said, given the kind of litigation that preceded all of this, it's never going to happen. And I think while we do get frustrated with the legal delays, this is a democracy at work. It is a working justice system. And we need to, as citizens, understand and support those processes, even though we may get frustrated by how long they actually take to be completed. So, Karen, you're not feeling disillusioned about where we're headed as a country where there's been this use of litigation to subvert accountability? I think that's very understandable. And I think that we as a country are going to have to start interrogating what appears to be manifest abuse of the judicial system by people who claim, who continuously deride it and constantly going on about how um, you know, they're being mistreated by the courts. Jacob Zuma has, has, has been extremely critical of the courts. Busisiwe Mkobane has been extremely critical of the courts. Um, the former, well, the, the current judge president has, you know, mounted attacks on anyone who has ever required accountability from him. Chief Justice Zondel is under constant attack because of the Zondel inquiry. And I think it's for us as citizens to say, in that context, what exactly are you criticizing? Specifically about this judgment, what is the problem? What is the issue with the reports? Like, you can't simply derive the judiciary that you utilize to further your own interests without being held to account and being required in a very critical, nuanced, and respectful way, which you demand for yourselves to then, you know, to, to actually explain what your critique is. So I do understand the frustration. I think that, you know, as ordinary people, if we are faced with accusations of wrongdoing, we go through a court process, we are held to account. But it seems like the powerful are able to abuse that system to their own ends. And I think at some point, and I'm hoping that it happens with the Jacob Zuma matter, because that's a pivotal issue that's before the Constitutional Court at the moment, there is going to be a line drawn in the sand and simply say, listen, you can't embark on these appeals during a trial. You need to do it at the end of the trial. This is what Judge Pitkun has said. Um, and it, I think it needs to be a, a recognizable line that is drawn in the sand by, by the courts. Yeah. Karen, so where the state capture report is out, you know, in summary, it took, what, over four years, 300 witnesses, 3,171 summonses, 8.6 million pages of documents, 1 billion rand approximately worth of taxpayers' money to implicate over 1,438 people by evidence, you know, in the state <laughs> capture report. And these numbers are just mind-blowing. They're staggering, right? After all of this, President Ramaphosa has until September now to reply with a plan of action. How do you see the president and the ANC responding to their obligation? I think that, you know, if they don't take um, palpable action, it is literally going to be the equivalent of having opened, like South Africa as a human body, up and seen how riddled with the cancer of corruption we are, and then asking us to sew ourselves back up and keep on carrying on. It's not something that we can do. And I don't think the South African people will accept it. The ANC is at the brink of a massive electoral disaster because the entire country in many respects, apart from its kind of diehard levels of support, 
are very frustrated with its apparent very overt mismanagement of what should be a thriving economy, dense, amazing natural resources, incredible people, um, and there is a great deal of frustration. So I think that if there isn't clear and palpable action as a result of this inquiry, I think that there is going to be serious consequences for the ANC, and, and they are very much aware of them. Um, we can't continuously have this culture that we've had since the TRC, since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, of using commissions as a mechanism to avoid or to deal with serious and profound economic, um, political, social scandals, and then asking us to just accept it when nothing happens. I don't think we as a people will tolerate that anymore. Yeah, well, as we wait for that to unfold, of course, I put the focus on this unfolding story because it's the big one, right, of national interest spanning years. It has so many other stories interlinked to it as well. But you've been a part of so many high profile court cases over the years, Karen, even outside uh, the political arena. So which one in particular has stood out for you and why? Sure, there are so many, but um, I mean, Ina Bonnet, who is actually a PSG employee, and, and she went through the Mori Mori monster trial, and she was such a profoundly um, impressive person because she had gone to experience this horrific crime. Her son murdered, horrific sexual violence inflicted on her by her ex-husband. Um, and she, I remember one day being so horrified by the evidence that I actually started crying and she comforted me. She was like, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, I meet people like that all the time, but I mean, she, you know, people who are just so, that's who South Africans are. They're brave. They're resilient. They come through absolute disasters and they carry on. And she has used her experience to become such a powerful voice against GBV and domestic violence. And you know, I, 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 she remains one of the most heroic and amazing people. And I was very blessed that she allowed me to write in some degree part of her story. Um, and I think that was definitely one of the most amazing experiences that I've had as a journalist. As, as we listen to you, Karen, you can see these are all stories you immerse yourself fully in. And I guess it's hard not to want to take things further, you know, as you fully engage with the people involved in them and want to take your readers along with you so that there's more of an in-depth understanding of the full story. Is that what got you to sit down and write book format? Yes, I think that, you know, when you do a book, you're able to really go so much more in-depth than you can in a news story and enable your readers to come along with you along with that journey and to kind of reach their own conclusions and make their own value judgments. So they almost as much write the story with you because they are, you know, they're engaging with it in a meaningful way. And I think that's, I think that's also, you know, why I make documentaries as well is I want to try and make people feel how I feel in a particular moment um, to sort of say to them, look at this, like, look at what's happened. Let's experience this together and let's, come through this, having a sense of what this teaches us um, in terms of maybe the big political economic um, stories, but also just about human resilience. I mean, when I wrote the book about myself and Kirsten Pearson about the nuclear deal, the most profoundly important part for me of that book was the fact that the nuclear deal was stopped by two middle-aged women and a really good court case. 
I mean, it wasn't, it was brave politicians and it was whistleblowers and it was, you know, a guy from Russia giving us a copy of the deal, giving these activists. It was all these people who did these amazing, brave things. But in the end of the day, it was two women. And I just, I see that all the time in South Africa. I see a lot of really horrible, desperate things, but I keep seeing people stepping up against their own interests and saying, no, I'm not being part of this. I'm not allowing it to happen. And doing it for all of us, because that is who we are as a country. Before I flash forward to your latest book, which is Nuclear, that you've already kind of alluded to there, uh, Karen, going back to Love is War, I mean, it landed, what, almost 10 years ago. Still, we come up against GBV, and instead of it having diminished, it's become a pandemic. We had a viewer question come in. Do you see stories like these actually lifting the lid on issues uh, you know, like these, talking loudly about these issues that play, actually filtering through and impacting decision-making, acting as a catalyst for change? No, I think that, um, you know, my frustration is that it's very obvious if you cover a lot of intimate femicide uh, cases that women are killed when they leave the husband or they leave the partner. They get stalked and they get murdered. So on a policy level, what are we doing to keep women safe when they decide to leave? These protection orders, I had a case of a young woman who died with her protection order in her hand, having been stalked and psychologically, physically, emotionally abused for years by this person who then stalked her and found her and murdered her on CCTV camera. Um, protection orders don't work, the police do not take domestic violence seriously. So when women are trying to get help, they are not assisted. So it becomes about um, how do you actually start putting policies in place that when women decide to get out of those abusive relationships, they don't risk the very real possibility that they will be murdered by their partners. As a South African woman, you, in terms of unnatural deaths, you are more likely to die at the hands of your partner than you are to die in a car accident. That is completely abnormal. And while men are the vast majority of victims of crime, they are often killed by strangers. We are killed by men who claim to love us. Yeah. That is not societally helpful. So I think there needs to be firm policy developed around keeping women safe. And I think there needs to be stringent adherence to you know, how protection orders are used so they don't just become documents that are ignored by the police when women are actually at risk. Absolutely. So lifting the lid on issues like these is one thing. It's uh, the step after that needs to be focused on as well and how policy comes into play effectively so that we do get a handle on um, crises like these that plague our society. Uh, Karen, let's get into your latest book now, Nuclear, because I'm cognizant of time here. Take us behind the scenes a bit on this one as best you can in this limited time that we have. I mean, what did it take? to get the book onto our shelves. I'm sure um, it was quite an experience. Well, essentially it looks at the Russia-South Africa nuclear deal and the way that it was burst in the former president Jacob Zuma's belief in 2014 that the CIA were trying to poison him, utilizing his wife, um, Marjuli Zuma. Um, and this bizarre scenario where she is subjected to kind of five years in almost house arrest while the state security agency investigates this apparent plot against the former president. And it's his belief that he is somehow the target of the poisoning that then means that whoever stands up against the nuclear deal that he 
um, wants to, you know, go into with Russia, that he signs with Russia, who he believes has saved him from this poisoning, is seen not just as someone raising palpable and important questions about the validity and the funding and all of this, but is seen as like an enemy of him and, you know, aligned with Western forces. And I think that what helped me with this book was to really understand that a lot of the political rhetoric that we have now, where we're constantly being asked to choose a side, where we're constantly sort of, you know, it's either radical economic, um, you know, transformation or civil Ramaphosa, and you can't, you can't, you can't be on one side, or you know, you have to, you can't be nuanced, you can't demand accountability from anyone. All of that stuff has its roots in in that kind of situation, and we need to see it and understand it for what it is. And I think that's why it's important. And I think that's why it helps us understand a lot of why we are where we are now in terms of our geopolitical situation, but also in terms of our energy crisis. It's actually, it's quite remarkable what you were able to uncover and what you were able to piece together, to put it all together. What does it take to win over the confidence of those sources you need to access uh, you know, what in many instances is confidential restricted information. I mean, these were secret international dealing and dealing here. I think the thing is, is like, you go into things with sincerity. Like, I just genuinely want to understand what happened. I want to hear the story. And I think a lot of people, you know, I fundamentally believe that people in South Africa are decent people. I've never... You know, while I make it like a lot of death threats and things on Twitter, when I engage with people in real life, they are kind, they are supportive, they're like, you know, they 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 want you to keep doing what you're doing and they, they express gratitude and appreciation for you. And I think that when you come into a situation, you literally like, I want to understand what happened here, I want to tell the story, people respond to that. And we did have a difficulty, I mean, it took us three years to do the research for this. We did have a lot of kind of, you know, suspicion. People initially didn't want to speak. But as we sort of uncovered the documents, as they saw that there was genuine sincerity, genuine engagement, more and more and more people sort of came forward and did so with a huge degree of bravery. And then, you know, one of my favorite moments subsequent to everything was interviewing the former finance minister, Nene. and I said to him, you know, like, because I've done all this research, I know how brave you were. I know what you did to fight this thing. And he said to me something that is so, that is really stuck with me. He said to me, I wasn't brave. It was just the thing of what I feared more. Did I fear Jacob Zuma more than I feared damaging our country? And that stuck with me because that's what a driver is, is that we love this place. We care about this place. We want it to succeed. We want it to be a better place for all of us. And we can't, we can't like allow people who want to bully and intimidate us allow fear of them to dominate a greater and more important fear and that is the preservation of a, of a dark democracy that can and should work and should be preserved and should be fought for. We can see Karen how passionate you are when you talk about these stories that you uncover. What emotion best describes how you feel when you're piecing these stories together? I think that, you know, I'm always just so amazed by the bravery of people who will come forward and say, look, I've got these documents, um, can you help me? Or they tell you their stories or, so, you know, we, people always say like, oh, you deal with so much darkness, you know, you deal with so much, how do you remain positive? And it's because there's always that little human being in the room. 
room holding up the light, you know? And I, I, I mean, this is a completely unrelated story, but many years ago, I did the most horrific case where a woman had been beaten to death in front of her little nine-year-old boy who had been forced to clean up the blood. It was horrendous. And I literally sat in this, and this little boy testified against his father because he was the murderer. And I thought, you know, God, Lord, there's no way that this child is going to survive this. Many years later, I get this call from documentary makers telling me, asking me about the story of this woman. And I'm like, I said to them, this is seriously the most depressing story I ever did. I literally felt like I remember praying about it and just being like, I don't know what's going to happen. And it emerges during this interview that this young boy who I saw holding a teddy bear and testifying his, about his dad um, killing his mom had been taken in by his uncle had got a university degree, was now doing ministry in prisons, preaching to men about GDP and about his own experiences and using his own pain to turn people away from what his father had done to his mother. And that is the, the miracle of, of, of this country, that there is we are overwhelmed in so much very profoundly distressing things, but they are always life in every room and we have to find them, keep them and add to them as the yeah. Like I say, you're portrayed as a patriotic optimism. Uh, you've outlined now just a lot of what keeps you positive about the future of South Africa. And uh, because we've run out of time, I'm going to end, uh, uh, end on a note of uh, your hope for the South African future, right? Uh, who do you think could be the next president of South Africa? Who do you want it to be? Is there a stark difference? So let's listen to that. You know, who do you think? The next president is going to be and who do you want it to be and is there a stark difference between the two i want south africa to be led by people the people within this country i, I think we've got to get out of this thing of thinking that we're going to get a leader who's going to save us because fundamentally from the zondo inquiry we have seen that the way in which the anc have operated and continues to operate maybe it'll change its ways is fundamentally um, corrupt and problematic. And I see all the time, you know, young people who are so profoundly energized, so passionate, so ethical, but are not in government because they don't want to go along with the unethical lack of integrity, dishonesty that has defined leadership this far. So I want to see this country led by someone who isn't a politician, someone who, is genuinely passionate about building, who is not in it for themselves or for their own interests, but are, is in it because they care about this place and they want to take it into the full potential of what it can be. So that is what I'm hoping. There is electoral reform coming. We can potentially be independently um, electing independent candidates. And I want to really see people who can and should be leading, stepping forward and saying, I want to do this and getting the support of this country. Well, Karen, despite all that you come up against, I'm sure that yours is a voice that won't be muted by intimidation. We recognize the work that you do. So thank you for that. And thank you for having joined us on this webinar today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you and catching up to our viewers. This webinar will be available via podcast. We welcome, of course, your feedback as usual. So please communicate with us and engage with us using the hashtag Think Big PSG and look out, of course, for our next speaker in the Think Big series as well. For me, Alicia Beckham, it's bye for now.